welcome to stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in the R, and now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts. She ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare, 'cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. If you're not making mistakes, you're not really attempting to do something. So. I think that uh, my patients are aware that I do my very best by them. The standard that I share with everyone, and I frequently say, is that I provide the same care I would want my daughter to receive. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. This is Karen Wickham, and I am your host of STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Today is episode two of the Dr. Kermit Gosnell case. The fact is, this just isn't a case about Gosnell. It's a case about agencies, government agencies that let down women, politics that cowardly people were afraid to address in case it made people uncomfortable, which leads to the media who kind of turned their back on this case because Again, it was too uncomfortable to talk about this man that I feel comfortable calling an American Mangala. And I don't take that word lightly. I don't take that lightly because Mangala was one of the worst Nazis, one of the worst doctors, did some of the most horrific medical experiments and treatments during the World War II. To me, that's one of the most horrific times in history. And not to diminish it in any way, I don't mean to. This son of a bitch, Gosnell, did some of the worst things that a man can do, that a person can do to other human beings. And the government let people down. And the media let people down. Almost everybody seemed to turn their backs on this deplorable, deplorable clinic. And the atrocious goings-on inside of it. Now that I've told you how I really feel, let's get started. The last episode I talked about Gosnell's early years as a doctor and abortionist. I believe the last thing I said was that after the horrific supercoil Mother's Day massacre, he fled to the Bahamas for a year. When Gosnell returned to Philadelphia, there seemed to be two sides of him, Gosnell the good and Gosnell the bad. It depends on who you talk to. On the one hand, he set up a family practice, made house calls, and allowed people to defer payment until they could afford it. A woman by the name of Dorothy Thomas, who was interviewed by the criminal investigator, journalist Volk, named him the good doctor. She had worked for him in his early years and then became a patient. And her daughter was also a big fan. She was quoted as saying that she began calling him the good doctor as well after watching him around the office. He accepted payments when they came and nothing when there wasn't anything that they could pay with. He cared about everybody and he tried to help everybody. I call him the good doctor because that's who he was and he always will be to me. It wasn't just Dorothy Thomas and her daughter that felt that way. Gosnell would visit patients at their home, bring the medication, patch up kids with scraped elbows and knees. He would also roam the neighborhood with his big dog to ward off the bad guys, thieves, break-ins, and bullies. 
When asked to explain her opinion on what came to surface of his atrocities, all Cindy Thomas could say was, quote, We don't know what happened exactly. My mother was a patient at the clinic when it closed, but she hadn't worked there since the 1970s. I'd say that he was a great man and the charges don't make sense, end of quote. And as for Dorothy, she said, quote, I don't believe the charges. I can't believe them and I won't, end of quote. Denial, plain and simple. But what do you expect? He is a typical psychopath, charming, secretive, living a double life, manipulative, intelligent. He knew how to blend in. Letters, I've gotten uh, wonderful little messages of support and confidence that the fact that I'm a good person will prevail. I wanted to include these people's perceptions and experiences with Gosnell because it shows the genesis of a serial killer and that all his victims weren't just killed or even directly harmed by him, but he did use these people as a front to cover his psychopathy. Another person I wanted to include in the discussion of Gosnell's early years is that of Julia Likens and her sister Elise. Julia Likens was nine when she met the Gosnell family in the 1990s. She came from a poor family, and her and her sister would spend summers at her grandma's and grandfather's house in Brigantine Bay. This is where she met the Gosnells. Julia and Elise did everything with the Gosnells. He treated them as his own children, taking them on trips and having sleepovers. The sisters remember these summers as the best time of their lives and considered the Gosnells excellent role models. To Elise and Julia, Gosnell was kind and warm. One of the things that did stand out was that their house was the home of a hoarder, full of items of garbage and very unclean. Julia's grandparents would worry about rats infesting the properties due to the piled up garbage, just like his homes would be 30 years later, and worst of all, his clinic. Although outwardly, the Gosnell home seemed ideal. Kermit had been married three times, and he had six children in total, two with each wife. At one point, he was a single father to two boys, and by all accounts, was a good father. His family practice slowly started to become an abortion clinic as he started to do more and more abortions from his office. It seems the documentary called The Silent Scream had a great impact on him. The obvious goal of this documentary is to prove that there are signs of life, of consciousness, in the second trimester. It is viewed as propaganda by pro-choice community and proof of life by the pro-life community. In this film, the fetus appears to be recoiling away from the instruments of abortion to avoid pain, and appears to be opening its mouth in a silent scream. Not a pleasant thought, regardless of what side a person is on. After seeing this documentary, Kermit set out to do his own experiments. He performed a few abortions while filming the ultrasound, and he saw the same thing as in the documentary. This did nothing to stop him from doing abortions, but it made him feel as if he wanted to reduce any pain that it would cause. In 1992, Gosnell's technique was influenced again when he attended a conference and saw Martin Haskell deliver one of the most controversial medical presentations in history in Dallas at a conference for abortion providers. Many abortion providers did not want Haskell to do the presentation because his procedure for dilation and extraction for late 
second trimester abortions would outrage pro-life advocates due to the graphic and barbaric nature of the procedure. I will not get into the details of this procedure, but if you really want to know more about it, you can Google it. Pro-lifers called this procedure a partial abortion, while pro-choicers stated that the fetus was not viable at this stage. One thing is for sure, the presentation had a major impact on how Gosnell would perform his abortions from that point on. This is when Gosnell started to use scissors to cut the spinal cords of the fetuses after they were delivered. He called this snipping. To Gosnell, it was an opportunity for mercy. Now I want to fast forward many years to 2010 when the raid occurred on his clinic, which set into motion all the horrors that were going on within the walls of this horrific clinic. One of the unsung heroes of the investigation, arrest and conviction of Gosnell was Detective Jim Wood. Jim Wood was an undercover narcotics agent who uncovered the unreported death, murder, of one of Gosnell's patients, Karnamaya Mongor. He went way beyond the call of duty as a narcotics agent to do the work of a homicide detective. He was a champion for Mongor and all the other women in infant deaths. I can't tell this story without giving due credit. Here's a quote from former Philadelphia Assistant District Attorney Christine Weschler. Quote, Jim Wood is remarkable. He gets it. He's very, very bright. And he was like, no, this isn't right. They couldn't have done this without him. He was obsessed. He was Mrs. Monger's champion. He was the only one. End of quote. Jim Wood has gone through his fair share of tragedy, but he is not a bitter man. In fact, he is loving and caring, a fair and dedicated cop. He has amazing gut instincts, and he uses them wisely. It was this instinct that uncovered Gosnell's horrors and put him away, keeping him from harming another woman or baby. Jim worked closely with lead FBI agent Jeff Huff and DEA agent Steve Doherty. They were fondly known as the Three Amigos. They worked this case together to the very end, like-minded and determined to do everything they could to bring justice to the victims, put Gosnell away, and hopefully stop something like this from happening again in the future. Like I said, it was Jim Wood who stood out among the rest. Once they gathered sufficient evidence, they prepared for the raid. As everyone would soon find out, Gosnell saw himself as some sort of savior, providing a service for his community. He would write prescriptions for Oxycontin, Percocet, Xanax, and coating syrup for whoever wanted them. And he would sell up to 200 scripts a night. His staff members would take the names of the patients during the day, and then he would come in and fill them out in the evening when he arrived to work. This is a quote from Gosnell explaining his motives for selling scripts. Quote, and so part of me is also being understanding that economically, in a recession, and when people don't have jobs, these prescriptions may be a lifeline to survival to some people. End of quote. He was doing good by the community, helping these poor drug dealers pay bills in tough times. Add on top of all this bullshit, Gosnell had worked at an addiction center as a physician, a quote-unquote addiction expert knowing full well the consequences of his actions on the community. There was only one and only one reason why he did this, for power and money. One of the informants named Tasha Lewis gave information 
to the investigators about this pill mill, but she also told them about the unsanitary and unsafe conditions of the clinic. One of the most important things that she told them was about Karna Maya Monger, the woman who had died in the clinic. Wood's gut instinct kicked in, and he called his lieutenant and asked him to find the police report of Mongar's death. There wasn't one. And this was his response. Quote, I couldn't believe it, because anytime there's a hospital case call, anywhere, from someone with a small injury to a very bad, bad injury, not just a shooting or a stabbing, police officers would ride with the medical unit. I guess they did away with that policy because I'm thinking, how could this woman die and there be no police report, end of quote. Wood contacted the medical examiner's office and asked if he had known anything about Mongor, and the ME said that they had performed the autopsy there. The toxicology report showed that she had had a high concentration of Demerol in her system. The death had been ruled accidental. John Wood did not believe that to be true. Wood was allowed to work on the case because it was linked to the drug case, and he got permission from Assistant DA Ed Cameron to pursue this case. He got a search warrant for Gosnell's clinic, so that meant while raiding the clinic for the drug case, he could also look for evidence into Mongar's death. On February 18, 2010, at 8.30, the three amigos, FBI, DEA, and District Attorney's investigators, and other members that had been invited from the Pennsylvania Public Health and other related agencies were assembled and ready for the raid at the Women's Health Society. Dr. Kermit Gosnell arrived at the clinic just before 9 p.m. with dinner in hand. He was talking to his wife on his cell phone, and when John Wood approached Gosnell, he had to ask him to get off his phone, even though he was clearly surrounded by law enforcement. He was very calm in his creepy, soft-spoken way, with the signature smile on his face. They informed him of the raid and proceeded into the clinic. Even though they had been told by Tasha Lewis about the conditions, they were not prepared for what they saw, smell, and heard. As soon as they entered the building, they were overwhelmed by the reek of cat feces, formaldehyde, and urine. There was a flea-infested cat running around the clinic. There was urine on the stairs and blood all over the floors and there were piles of trash everywhere. The conditions were described as being filthy, deplorable, disgusting, very unsanitary, very outdated, horrendous, and by far the worst conditions that they had ever seen. Everything was covered in cat fur, including all the clinical areas that are supposed to be sterile. The investigators saw a semi-conscious woman moaning in the waiting and recovery rooms. The lounge chairs that they were sitting in had dried blood on them. They had blankets on their lap that also had old and new blood on them because they were only getting washed once a week. The two surgical procedure rooms were filthy and completely unsanitary. The procedure beds that he performed the abortions on had old and new dried blood on them and they were ripped and the metal was rusted. The surgical tools were not sterilized and some of them had blood on them as well. And disposable instruments that are supposed to be thrown out after one use were being washed and reused over and over. The emergency equipment was old and outdated and hadn't been expected for a long time, if ever. The oxygen tanks were covered in dust and the only tubing that could be used for the delivery of oxygen 
was the tubing used for the abortion procedure itself. There was only one dirty blood pressure cuff. That, in essence, was their emergency equipment. The clinic was not equipped for any emergency situation. In fact, the emergency exit was blocked with boxes and the door was padlocked. The hallways were narrow and winding and the clinic was actually three separate buildings that had been haphazardly joined together. And walking and navigating the hallways was like going through a labyrinth in hell. The front entrance of the clinic was full of plants and cat feces in pots. There were dirty fish tanks. One of them was occupied by a large illegal turtle in it. In fact, one of the things Gosnell did when he walked into the clinic was feed the turtle smashed up clams. He was being raided, raided, but he just casually walked over and fed his turtle as if nothing else was going on. The officers and agents wanted to separate all the staff and question them individually. But first they wanted to make sure that the women who were waiting on or just had a procedure were okay. There was a health department nurse there for the raid and her name was Eleanor Barsity. She described what she saw. Quote, it was dimmed. There were females sitting in lounge chairs. Like there was one lounge chair, then there were four more. Then you had to go down two steps and then there were three more females sitting in a chair. Chairs down there were just regular hardback chairs. The ones in the recovery area were kind of like lazy boy chairs. Five women sat in the post-op area in those chairs covered with dark blankets. The first one was kind of somnolent. She was sleeping. The second and third one were quite uncomfortable saying that they had cramps and that they were bleeding. The fourth and fifth ones were kind of awake and with it. They were more talkative and verbal. End of quote. One woman had even brought her children with her and they were running around the clinic. Can you imagine? This is no place for little kids to be running around in. And I can only assume the woman had no other choice. So there were eight women in total there that night and none of them had been given the counseling and the waiting time, which is 24 hours before getting the procedure. This is law. The 24 hour counseling forms had been pre-signed and Gosnell wanted to make sure that these women didn't have a chance to change their minds. A woman could arrive at the clinic, pay, and get the abortion that day, which, as I said, is illegal. None of the post-operative patients were being monitored with proper equipment, and like I said earlier, that equipment was old, dusty, dirty, and looked unused. Further observation from Nurse Barsony is as follows. Quote, The first patient... I had to actually tap her on the knee to wake her up. The other two were in so much pain they weren't sleeping. They were having abdominal cramping and holding their stomach and trying not to be loud, but they were having pain and discomfort. The other two were drowsy but arousable and they were talkative. They were upset. End of quote. Among all the horrors, Nurse Barsony noted that the suction machine that is used during the procedure had tubing that was corroded and the suction gauge was broken. Gosnell had no idea how much suctioning he was using on these women for such a delicate procedure. Barsini decided that the women should be taken to the hospital for assessment, especially the women who were bleeding heavily and in severe pain. Paramedics arrived and quickly discovered that the emergency exit was blocked and padlocked and no one knew where the key was. 
This was the same door that was locked when the paramedics arrived to save Karnamaya Mongar. The delay in treatment likely contributed to her death. These poor women had to be walked out of the clinic because a stretcher could not fit in the narrow halls piled high with garbage. These women would have to be walked out. These women would have been very weak and in agony. While this was happening, a health department nurse by the name of Darlene Augustine and two police officers went into the basement. The stairs were very rickety and unsafe, and they struggled to find the light switch. When they were finally able to see their surroundings, what they saw was shocking. The basement was filled with bags of fetal remains that reached to the ceiling. Scattered around the room and behind the bags were medical files and broken and old equipment. And, weirdly, there were plants all along the walls, and there was cat feces and urine everywhere. Biological waste and used sharps like needles and ampules and bottles lay open for anyone to cut themselves on, get a needle stick injury, or become contaminated. Can it get worse? I hope you're sitting down already. I don't even think I can explain this next part without losing my shit. So I'm taking an excerpt from Anne McElhaney and Phelan McCallier's book, Gosnell, The Untold Story of America's Most Prolific Serial Killer, to explain it. Here's the excerpt. Soon after they arrived, however, Huff's supervisor from the FBI approached the two health department nurses to let them know that one of the patients had a problem and needed assistance. What the patient really wanted was for her abortion to proceed. Health department nurse Eleanor Barsony phoned her supervisor, Cynthia Boyne, who in turn called her supervisor, Janice Stolowski, in Harrisburg. Still, even in the light of her appalling track record to this point, Stolowski made a virtually incredible decision on the night of the raid. She said that a health department had no jurisdiction to stop Gosnell from doing the abortion. He should be allowed to perform the procedure. Huff's FBI supervisor concurred. Although Huff and Wood tried to stop that from happening, Gosnell was allowed to perform the abortion while the raid was going on. Every time I read this, I can't even imagine. A raid beyond filthy, disgusting conditions. This man was allowed to perform yet another abortion while the other women were, that were there were being carted off to the hospital because they were in such bad condition. Who was taking care of this woman who clearly was so distraught that she felt she needed that abortion immediately? That's not my decision to make, but she wasn't given the 24-hour grace period to think about it. It can only speak of her desperation and her need to have a chance to think it through. If her decision was to go through with it, it's not up to me to judge. But, yeah. yeah. So how is this allowed to happen? I mean, for fuck's sakes, all I can say is as a nurse, I would have physically tried to stop that from happening if I could have. He could have killed another woman. Right under the noses of everyone there. <sighs> oh, 
Okay. I'm now composed. Huff, Wood, and Doherty had to wait while the abortion was being performed to continue their interview. This is how FBI agent Huff described what happened next on the witness stand during Gosnell's murder trial. Quote, When Gosnell came back, we continued the interview. He also got food, and he actually, he actually ate his dinner wearing his bloody latex gloves that had some holes in them. He actually ate his dinner with the gloves on. End of quote. And as per his staff, this was not an uncommon occurrence. Quote, Dr. Gosnell would always eat during a procedure, a sandwich or a bowl of cereal. End of quote. I am pulling my hair out right now. What is wrong with this sick MF? Seriously. I, 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 I've thought about this over and over again. Was he just so twisted, so effed up that this was just not a big deal? This was just what you did? Or was he doing this for shock value? Was he trying to, you know, get to them, freak them out, gross them out? Was he trying, was he messing with their heads? And, and I don't know. Maybe it was a bit of both. But either way, it's one of the most twisted, weird, effed up things I've read. During the walk around with Gosnell, Wood asked him who had medicated Mongar. Gosnell said that he had asked one of his staff, Linda Williams, to give the medication. Now, Linda Williams was a phlebotomist with a 8th grade education. Gosnell stated that he was always present when the medication was given, including Karnemeyer Mongars. This was a lie. Williams told the investigators that she had given the medication herself without supervision. Something else Williams told the investigators was that Gosnell manipulated the results of the ultrasound to make the fetuses look younger than they were. He was covering up illegal late-term abortions. Pennsylvania law prohibits abortions after 23 weeks and 6 days. Meanwhile, Gosnell appeared to be having a grand old time chatting and escorting Wood and the other investigators around the clinic. He was, as he became to known as, the typical Gosnell. Cooperative, soft-spoken, yet chatty. Polite, charming, relaxed, and not at all flustered. He arrogantly believed that the police knew next to nothing. Like many serial killers, they always think that they're smarter and one step ahead of the police. Wood started asking questions about how he did ultrasounds. As per Wood's quote, his face changed color. His lips started to quiver. He dropped his head and looked like he was trying to compose himself because he wasn't expecting that. I think that's when he figured out we were getting info from the other workers and now he was in big doo-doo. End of quote. It was probably the only time that Gosnell looked shaken. Gosnell quickly composed himself and tried to deflect by talking about a fellow abortion physician, George Tiller, who had recently been gunned down and killed in Kansas. Wood didn't waver and continued on questioning. Next, Gosnell tried to educate the investigators that abortions were legal up until 24 and a half weeks. And of course, this was wrong. He tried to say that he would send pregnancies over 24 and a half weeks to Kansas or Colorado. And this, of course, was a lie. 
Wood informed Gosnell that they had found many aborted fetuses stored in the basement, and he asked Gosnell how many of those would be over 23 weeks and 6 days. Not a lot. Maybe 10 to 20 percent, he told Wood, admitting his crimes in the most casual of ways to a cop and FBI agents. The investigations went long into the night. Hundreds of pictures were taken and would continue to try to collect evidence for Karnamaya Mongar's murder. I guess alleged murder at that point. During the search, Wood and Doherty came upon one of the most grisly and disturbing and confounding pieces of evidence. Wood opened a metal cupboard and found five jars containing severed little baby feet. He looked at Doherty and asked, Is this normal? As written by McElhinney in Macular's book, Wood had told them this. I've never been to an abortion clinic before. It didn't look normal, but crazy things happen in this world. End of quote. They had to leave the jars because it didn't fit into the allowed material that could be collected as evidence. They examined the fridges and freezers, which were placed all over the building and even in some of the bathrooms, and the investigators found a total of 47 babies. I'm going to read a statement from Dr. Sam Gulino, Philadelphia's chief medical examiner, that would detail what was found. Quote, There was a great variety of types of containers. Some of them were, in one case, a distilled water jug, where the top had been cut off of it. Others were drink containers, like I think one was a cherry limeade container that had been used. There were others that I recognized. It was a container that you would have either dog or cat food in because I actually used that brand of cat food from my cat. So I knew that the container was this by its very distinctive shape. And in most of the cases, the tops had been cut off so that the opening was larger. And then they were contained in them, usually with some amount of body fluid that was frozen fetal tissue. And then, as I said, some of them also contained other objects such as gloves or gauze and in some cases, some of the cervical dilators." End of quote. The next day after meeting with D.A. Joe McGetton, Wood, Huff, and Doherty knew they had to get more search warrants. At that moment, Gosnell still had full access to his clinic. He hadn't been arrested or even charged with a crime. He could remove all the evidence that he pleased. That night, Wood, Gosnell and Gosnell's lawyer, John McConnell, all met at Gosnell's clinic while searching. Now this is, this part just adds to this man's, oh, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it. While searching, Gosnell walked up to the freezer they were looking in and Gosnell nonchalantly said, quote, oh, by the way. That's Miss Mongar's fetus. The fetus remained in the freezer while its mother was buried in the ground. And he was just so casual, almost giddy, pointing that out to them. Here's another quote that he told to Mechalini and McClear. Quote, I'll never forget it. You open a freezer door. You know how you have one inside of a fridge. There is a freezer. Well, 
Mrs. Mongar's baby was in there, in a clear bag. It was the only one in a clear bag, wrapped in a paper towel. And the medical examiner determined the fetus was 19 weeks old. End of quote. They didn't take any files, but they did take some pictures of them. They lacked the warrants. But how could you know what and how many warrants to get in this house of horrors? When they finally got the warrant for April 2nd, all the files were gone. But they did seize the baby feet in the containers and took them to the Emmy's office. The only answer that they ever got from Gosnell and his staff was that he said he kept these little feet for DNA purposes. At one point, it was said by more than one employee that he had as many as 22 jars of baby feet. Where they went, no one knows. On February 22nd, a police officer removed Gosnell's medical license from the wall. The frame had blood on it. What a twisted metaphor. Also on February 22nd, Gosnell's license was temporarily suspended. He worked and performed abortions at his clinic on those days and had plenty of time to destroy evidence. In fact, even worse, the Department of Health officials didn't actually start the proceedings to shut down the clinic until March the 12th, which means that he actually continued to brutalize women and infants, neonates, for another month. On April 2nd, Agent Huff got a warrant to search Gosnell's home. The search was video documented by Detective Wood. The team wore hazmat suits because based on the findings of the clinic, they didn't know what they were going to find there. They made the right decision to wear suits because the house was disgusting. There was garbage, old food, clothes, plastic bags, and stuffed animals everywhere piled high. The curtains were closed tight and when they opened them they saw the room was filthy trash filled books and papers everywhere and the dust was thick on every surface there were signs of shopping sprees everywhere many expensive items were left unopened every room had a fridge including the bathrooms but there were no fetal remains found the outside of the house was just as bad as the inside gosnell was home at the time of the search and get this he entertained the investigators by cheerfully playing Chopin on his piano. Can you imagine how surreal that would be? Raiding the sick MF's house and he's sitting in at his piano, happily, cheerfully playing Chopin. When the investigators went to search the basement, Gosnell strongly warned them against it. And of course they still went, what could be down there? And as they went down the stairs, they heard a strange noise, but couldn't figure out what it was. When they turned the lights on, they saw that their hazmat suits were turning black from the feet up. They were being covered in fleas. They ran up the stairs, and when they reached the top, Gosnell smiled and said, See, I'm not such a bad guy. I told you not to go down there. How many fleas is that? That they were down there in seconds, and they were, had already crawled up to their knees black up to the knees what the living hell is that the investigators found gosnell's 15 year old teen daughter jenna asleep in bed although her room looked like any other teenager's room there were some glaring differences her bedroom door was locked from the outside which is really weird or it could lock from the outside she wasn't locked in 
and beside her bed was a locked trunk that contained a 380 caliber semi-automatic pistol and $241,000 in cash. I'm going to end this episode right here. I think I've said enough for this episode. <laughs> that is a lot to take in, isn't it? So, in the next episode, I will discuss the staff that work there. Like me, I'm sure you're wondering, how could anyone work at Gosnell's Clinic? Who were these people? So yeah, next episode, we'll discuss the staff that work there and firsthand accounts of what was really going on inside the walls of this true house of horrors. Usually at this time, I tell you a suture room story. Unfortunately, I'm not going to have one here for you today because I am currently milking my brain and writing down and composing and compiling a whole bunch of new ones for you guys, which will be on the next one. So please forgive me for that. Might I suggest that you run to the nearest computer if you're not already on one and cleanse your brain with some of the most cute puppy and kitten videos that you can find or pictures that you can find. Maybe this will help take this horror out of your head. And before we go, I want to thank everybody for listening and supporting me on Patreon and supporting me with iTunes reviews and ratings. Thank you so much for all of that. And if you don't mind, maybe those of you that haven't could go check out iTunes and maybe give me a rating or review. It's up to you. Don't want to be pushy about that. Your listenership is honestly the best, best gift that I have. So remember, take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Be loving. And most importantly, take care of yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat. <laughs>